The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We're supposed to be looking at the interesting question of uh, the significance of uh, Dr. Van Thiel's apologetic and uh, more specifically um, presuppositionalism for people involved in um, doing biblical studies, uh, biblical scholarship, but uh, even if uh, a person doesn't have uh, scholarly interest as such, but uh, wants to be involved in, in serious uh, study of the Bible, uh, the, the question immediately arises as to what uh, implications uh, Dr. Van Til's approach has for the way in which we go about reading the Bible, studying it, and then at a more advanced level, what is the role of, uh, of scholarship in the uh, broader context of uh, attacks against the uh, uh, authority of the Bible. And um, the, uh, the question might arise for a variety of reasons, but the, one of the problems that uh, you may be aware of is that uh, Dr. Van Til's uh, teaching with regard to apologetics is sometimes understood in a way that uh, seems incompatible with an aggressive uh, study of, uh, of the historical uh, aspect of Scripture. Um, as you probably know, uh, sometimes Dr. Van Til's presuppositional approach is set over against the um, more traditional uh, evidentialist approach where there's a great deal of emphasis on, on the use of evidences and sins. Uh, the use of evidences or the study of historical facts and other issues uh, of, uh, of a similar nature is part of what biblical scholars do. Uh, that's what gives rise to the question, is there a legitimate connection between these two? Uh, even more interestingly, the question is raised uh, at a more personal level, as some of you may be aware of, uh, whether uh, what Dr. Ventil was doing in the Department of Apologetics was compatible with what the Machen had done uh, back in the 20s and in the 30s in his own uh, biblical scholarly approach. Now, in a way, um, at least for me, who came here as a student in 1966, and I was privileged to have Dr. Van Til for the uh, introductory course in apologetics, uh, it is a surprising question because it is not something that occurred to me uh, in the uh, in the process of taking that course. Now, maybe I was not as perspicacious a student as I, sh as I should have been, but um, uh, maybe I should give you just a little bit of background. Um, when I was at uh, in college at Bob Jones University, uh, even though uh, Bob Jones University is not usually viewed as a uh, stalwart of uh, Calvinistic uh, theology or anything of the sort, uh, we heard a lot about... Uh, you know, old Princeton theology and Westminster theology, and the name of Van Til came up in a variety of settings. And uh, I had a classmate at the time, Ray Dillard, who taught Old Testament here until his death uh, over a year ago, who uh, got a copy of uh, Van Til's book on uh, Christianity and Bartianism. And uh, I remember very vividly his uh, waving this book around and showing it to me and uh, started trying to read it and, and make sense of it. And apart from the uh, German footnotes, uh, you know, I could make a few things out and so on. Uh, 
But um, I had some awareness, a little bit superficial at the time, of what Van Til's work was all about. I had a little bit more familiarity with the, the biblical uh, studies tradition. And uh, as I recall, uh, prior to my coming to the seminary, I had read Machen's book on the origin of false religion. And I remember uh, being so overwhelmed by the, uh, uh, the, the power, really, of his analytical approach to the question. And uh, those of you who may be familiar with the book can know that um, what Machen does, or one of the things that he does and does very well, is in raising the question, what, what was the origin of post-religion? How did this come about? Uh, he begins to look at uh, alternative theories that have been um, presented as a means of accounting for the distinctiveness of Paul's uh, teaching. And uh, he will take one of these uh, theories and uh, uh, be very fair, exceedingly fair in expounding that particular point of view. And then he will begin to raise a question about a certain weakness. And then he will spend the several pages showing uh, in a rather devastating way how that isn't going to work. And then he says, but let's suppose that uh, that part is okay. Uh, you'd still have to deal with this problem. And then he has another couple of pages and, and destroys that. And says, but let's grant that one. Then how about this problem? And by the time you're finished, uh, you're really quite taken back by the thoroughness uh, of his approach. And then the inevitable conclusion of his, after he's gone through that for you know, four or five of the major theories, that the only possible uh, alternative left is to recognize the supernatural origin of uh, Paul's message. And um, I was familiar with that. And uh, I came to uh, Philadelphia, and uh, you know, I got married right after college and moved here. And my first contact with Van Til wasn't in the classroom, but uh, rather he was preaching up in a, town, in a uh, church up in, uh, near Doylestown in a uh, Sunday evening uh, worship. And I wasn't quite prepared for, for that other side of Van Til and the personal impact, because if all you know is his writings and all you've seen is his rather somber picture in, in some of the jackets of, of the books that uh, have been published, uh, you just not, wouldn't have been prepared for, for the warmth of, uh, of his preaching and for his incredible concern uh, for the reality of people's lives. And I remember speaking very passionately about, uh, uh, in that particular time, there were news about people suffering in India, and uh, he was making a, a very a big point about our responsibilities with regard to that. But as I said, as I began to uh, teach his, uh, to um, take his course on apologetics, I, it was not at all... Uh, a matter of concern to me, it, it really did not uh, come up in my mind that what I was uh, hearing in the classroom in any way undermined or uh, created some kind of problem with the sort of thing that Machen had been doing in his work on, on the origin of Paul's religion. Uh, now, in the, uh, in the course of that uh, introductory class, um, there was a great deal of emphasis on um, the uh, traditional proofs for the existence of God. And uh, as you probably realize, Van Til had uh, many criticisms about the traditional way in which this, would do, this was done. And I had to get into a discussion, which I had not you know, uh, studied in great detail before. And I was supposed to write these long papers that I seemed illegal to me to have to write such long papers. But uh, the very first one I recall was an Aquinas' um, uh, proofs for the existence of God. And uh, when I got the paper back, I, I was rather pleased to see that I had a decent grade. And uh, as I flipped through the 
paper. There weren't very many comments, but finally I came across in the margin, good, and uh, I thought, well, maybe I've made some progress. And then I looked carefully at the paragraph, and almost the whole paragraph was a quotation of Van Til. <laughs> but uh, in any case, the uh, concern that Van Til had uh, over the way in which the uh, traditional proofs for the existence of God were handled, uh, that kind of emphasis, and also his uh, usual downplaying of the role of evidences in apologetics, it is that sort of thing that uh, sometimes has raised questions in the minds of some people about the compatibility between what Van Til was doing in the apologetics classroom on the one hand and what Machen had been doing in the area of, um, of biblical scholarship and uh, what his successors continued doing uh, here at Westminster Seminary. Now, um, just to uh, make you aware of um, some work that has been done in this area, I, it was, uh, as I said, fairly obvious to me as a student that uh, there was not a fundamental problem here. And I suppose the reason why I didn't think it was a problem was, first of all, that uh, Van Til never, ever said anything uh, of a negative character regarding uh, the kind of uh, historical work that Machen had done and which uh, his colleagues were doing at that time on the faculty. Um, also, I suppose it was uh, fairly obvious to me, uh, having been in the classroom, that although Van Til would express himself in somewhat hyperbolic fashion sometimes, uh, because he would uh, emphasize one point, that this was the thing that he was interested in, uh, that didn't mean that he was rejecting another side of, uh, of the responsibilities of the apology. But I'm very glad that uh, there are a number of um, folks around who um, have not been satisfied just with this kind of um, personal experience, but have actually gone through Van Til's writing and tried to show that, in effect, uh, Van Til's position cannot be interpreted as some, some sort of wholesale rejection of uh, the use of evidences or even uh, the uh, theistic proofs. And I want to call your attention to a few of these in case you're not aware of them. Uh, there's a little book by a uh, fellow named Tom Notaro, who was a student here at Westminster and uh, did his THM in, uh, in, in this topic, Van Til and the Use of Evidence. And then um, Greg Bonson wrote an article more directly dealing with the uh, supposed uh, contradiction between Machen and Van Til uh, in a book uh, pressing toward the mark, which was uh, produced in, um, in connection with the 50th anniversary of the Orthodox uh, Presbyterian Church. And uh, since they did the work, I haven't had to you know, read through the whole of Van Til's writings to find these quotations, because it is true, these are not common quotations, and I think one needs to recognize that. But I, I would want to argue that the reason they're not common is that to Van Til was perfectly obvious that uh, this was part of the whole picture. It just wasn't his field or the thing that he, he felt called to emphasize. And so, for example, in the um, apologetic syllabus, which was the main thing we were supposed to read when I was a student here, on the very first page, uh, Van Til makes this comment. It is impossible and useless to seek to vindicate Christianity as a, as a historical religion by a discussion of facts only. It is impossible and useless to seek to vindicate Christianity as a historical religion by a discussion of facts only. Now, you see, the word only there is absolutely critical. Uh, the point is, 
he is assuming that you're doing that kind of work, that you are dealing uh, with a discussion of facts. Uh, that's part of the whole picture. But the, if that's all you do, you're in trouble. And so now he's going to talk about everything else and not a discussion of facts as such. Or again, in his uh, book, uh, Christian Theory of Knowledge, he uh, makes uh, this statement on page 250, the Christian faith is not a blind faith, but is faith based on evidence. Now that, too, is a very, very important uh, comment to keep in mind. Uh, you may be aware that uh, sometimes uh, Van Til and people in our circles are um, described as fideistic. Fideistic. Now, you know, that comes from the Latin word for faith. Now, you would think that this would be a compliment, you know, you're a person of faith or something, but uh, this word usually has a pejorative uh, connotation. It's the kind of person that, uh, you know, I believe what I believe and bother me with the facts and, or, uh, you know, blind faith of some sort. And uh, Van Til uh, very explicitly rejects that kind of an approach. Uh, the Christian faith is not a blind faith, but is faith based on evidence. So to suggest that um, Ventil rejected evidential uh, in arguments uh, simply does not uh, comport with his own statements. In his uh, best-known book, I think the uh, one that has been read most uh, widely, Defense of the Faith, he addresses specifically the question of the proofs for the existence of God. And he says on page 197, I do not reject theistic proofs but merely insist on formulating them in such a way as not to compromise the doctrines of Scripture. Now, you really cannot be much clearer than that. You know, it, it's very plain what he's saying. I do not reject, <laughs> that's, you know, explicit. I do not reject theistic proofs, but merely insist on formulating them in such a way as not to compromise the doctrines of Scripture. Now, of course, he says merely, and, and uh, you know, he wrote volume after volume after volume of this merely stuff. Um, and that's, that's the problem, that uh, having um, acknowledged that uh, theistic proofs have some role, he proceeds to critique the way in which those proofs have been used uh, traditionally. And then uh, on the same book, Defense of the Faith, page 199, this, the context of this quotation is uh, he's dealing with the problem of uh, historical argumentation and he explicitly says that he he does use that kind of argumentation but it is not his field he leaves that for the old new testament departments uh, but it it has uh, its place uh, and then he makes th this important comment but i would not talk endlessly about facts and more facts without ever challenging the non-believers philosophy of fact I would not talk endlessly about facts and more facts without ever challenging the non-believer's philosophy of fact. Now that, you see, it's a very, very instructive uh, comment uh, to my way of thinking because he, Bentham is clearly saying it is appropriate to talk about facts. It is even appropriate to talk a lot about facts. It's just that if you do that endlessly, and never raise the more fundamental question, you know, what is your interpretation of a fact? You know, what function does that play in your thinking? What role does that play in your thinking? 
uh, then uh, that is not particularly useful. And that is what he was very interested in uh, uh, critiquing and, and trying to get us to think uh, differently. Um, there's one more quotation that I want to give you. <clears throat> and as I said, you know, there are not hundreds of these. Uh, there may be a couple dozen of them because he was interested in, in, other, uh, in, in doing other things, but they're just enough to make it very plain where he stood on some of these questions. This one comes from, uh, again, from his book on the Christian theory of knowledge, page 35. And uh, the context of, of this particular quote is um, he's addressing specifically the question of uh, a believer being confronted by arguments, say, from, from a liberal uh, critical point of view, people who are challenging the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of, of the Bible. And the question then is, how, how does a believer respond to that? Um, and, and this is what Van Til says. Shall he be an obscurantist and hold to the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, though he knows that it can empirically be shown to be contrary to the facts of Scripture themselves? Then he answers, it goes without saying, that such should not be his attitude. Let me read that again. If you're attacked, you see, by somebody who is questioning the authority of Scripture, uh, should you hold to the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, even though you know that someone can empirically show um, that to be contrary to the facts of Scripture? And his answer, again, is very instructive. It goes without saying. You see, that's why he didn't say very much. <laughs> it goes without saying. It is obvious that that ought not to be your attitude, to say, well, so here you have these archaeological facts, and, and you can demonstrate empirically that the Bible is not true. I don't care. You know, I've made up my mind. I, am, I believe, and so on. No, that's not the way you approach things at all. Uh, for, uh, for Van Til, facts were very important. But... See, they had to be facts interpreted correctly. They had to be facts put in the proper framework. And you cannot understand truly you know, any fact uh, except within the context of the teaching of Scripture itself. Well, <clears throat> Bonson, in, in, his, uh, in the article that I was uh, referring to, uh, spends quite a bit of time going even further than this. And uh, he, uh, he tries to argue, for instance, that Machen's own approach to apologetics uh, was quite compatible with, uh, with Van Til. And uh, it, this is where some of the uh, difficult problems uh, arise. And I realize that, you know, uh, you know I, I intend to conduct this as a real seminar in the sense that I, I hope that you will ask questions because I know that just from looking at the audience that there are people with different backgrounds and different interests and so on. And uh, I hope that you will uh, ask any questions that you're interested in, and, and that we'll just pr proceed uh, from there. But uh, just to clarify something in case uh, I am assuming things that I shouldn't, um, Machen, of course, had been a student at uh, Princeton Seminary at the end of the uh, 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And uh, the um, Princeton Theological Seminary at the time had uh, was probably regarded as the uh, strongest uh, theological institution around. And a, a significant uh, part of the instruction and the research uh, that was going on at Princeton at the time 
was uh, very much of an apologetic character, that is, uh, defending the authority of Scripture against the developments of uh, higher criticism and, and other kinds of uh, challenges to, uh, to the Christian faith. The uh, faculty at Princeton Seminary uh, used what uh, almost all evangelical Christians used at the time, and, and we refer to this in, as a traditional kind of apologetics. Surely this is what Machen would have been taught as a student when he began teaching at the seminary some years later. You know, one would reasonably assume that uh, he would still be using the same approach. And then the question arises, well now, uh, he and a few others uh, leave Princeton Seminary in 1929. They found Westminster Seminary. Uh, Van Til, who had already been doing some teaching at Princeton, becomes the professor of apologetics and develops a method of apologetics that is not only different from what you find in old Princeton, but it is self-consciously developed in distinction from, almost, at least in some respects, in opposition to the traditional approach. And um, there are a number of individuals who have taken not these quotations that I have read, these would be ignored uh, by them, but they take some of the other more, you know, the stronger statements that uh, Van Til had made with regard to, uh, in a negative way, with regard to evidences and the theistic proofs and so on. And uh, they assume that when you look at Machen doing all of his work on the origin of Paul's religion of the virgin birth of Christ and so on, he is basically pursuing the apologetic method of old Princeton and that therefore uh, what Machen had done and what Van Til was now doing uh, these things are not compatible and even contradictory. And Bonson's uh, argument is that that is not realistic, partly because uh, these two men had known each other for a relatively long period of time. They worked together. Machen was the one who asked uh, Van Til to uh, come and teach, and Machen would already have been aware of the direction of Van Til's thinking, and there's absolutely no evidence uh, that anybody has shown that Machen found that direction to be uh, mistaken or, or invalid. Now, whether you can go a step further, as Bunsen wants to, uh, wants to do, and say that Machen's own approach was of a presuppositional character, that's a little bit more difficult to prove. Uh, I suppose that uh, that might be true in a sense that, you see, one could argue that any genuine Christian, uh, you know, all, all real Christians are, are Calvinists at heart. And uh, you could also make the argument that all real Christians are also presuppositionalists at heart. They just don't know it. They're not consciously so. And uh, I think it, if, if you tried real hard, you could probably go through Warfield and some of the other men at, at Princeton and, and uh, see certain statements that are made that uh, are more compatible with a presuppositional approach than with a typical evidentialist. And uh, you can find some statements in Machen that uh, move in the same direction. Uh, I don't know how much you can, uh, how, how much you can push that. But uh, whatever Machen's own conscious understanding of the apologetic approach ought to be, I have no doubts whatsoever that his biblical, uh, his professional biblical work, his biblical scholarship. Uh, was compatible and even in a very important sense complementary to the kind of thing that uh, Van Til was developing at the time. And um, I'll, I'll say a few more things in just a few minutes that may help to uh, flesh that out a bit. But I, I did want to pause at this time 
and uh, give you a chance to ask any questions, uh, either if there's anything that I've said that isn't clear or you want to pursue any of these uh, themes, I'll be happy to do so. Yeah. So, do you agree with what you're saying with others, you mean other things that until has said? Right. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, is there are there some specific things that, that trouble you, or are you just speaking in very general terms? Uh, I don't think any, and I hope even Van Til wouldn't have argued that you have to agree with me in everything, or else you're in trouble. Um, no, I, I mean, I, it is true that Van Til's whole approach is a, is a rather well thought out and consistent system, and uh, I, it would be a little uh, artificial to pick this and pick that without understanding how it all fits together. But uh, that's not to say that um, uh, you know one has to agree 100% with, with every point that, uh, I mean, that's never been the case. I, I cannot imagine that even the faculty here has ever agreed with Van Til on, on, on every single thing, uh, no. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe everybody here doesn't see, but maybe sketch a few supplemental, a defined supplemental apology. I'm not sure if everybody. Oh, I guess I assume everybody heard Edgar this morning with. Uh, I didn't. I didn't attend that particular one, so I. <coughs> well. I just assumed that Bill Edgar, that people had listened to Bill Edgar this morning, where he, he did try to give a summary of uh, presuppositional uh, apologetics. Well, um, for the purposes of, of this seminar, all that really matters is, uh, in a sense, what I have already alluded to, that um, in a presuppositional um, approach, you don't, um, you don't start out with the facts in uh, viewing them as having some sort of uh, neutral value so that you're speaking with the unbeliever and you assume that uh, the unbeliever can look at the facts the same way that you, uh, who have committed yourself yourself to the teaching of Scripture, are looking at those facts. And that, um, uh, for example, you might use uh, the uh, proofs for the existence of God on the assumption that by presenting uh, either a set of facts or a set of logical arguments, uh, you bring a person to a position where now they can recognize the truth of the Christian religion, uh, when in effect what you're doing is assuming that uh, a person um, who is an unbeliever and who does not accept the authority of Scripture has the authority with his own rational powers to pass judgment on the validity of the facts or the logical arguments that you're dealing with. That um, uh, a presuppositional approach uh, seeks to get to the root of things and to, uh, to recognize that uh, all of us uh, approach whatever we see, whatever we hear, with, a, with an ultimate commitment either to the truth of what God has said or to the alternative. And that... Um, it is not, at least ultimately, not possible 
to uh, interpret the facts correctly unless you're approaching them from the perspective of the one who created these facts. All right? Now, the way that this um, uh, works itself out in terms of the distinction between a traditional approach to apologetics and a presuppositional approach uh, is primarily that um, according to the traditional approach, now, now obviously this depends on, on who the, uh, the ap apology is. I mean, some people are more extreme than others about it, but let me put it in an extreme fashion, which is a little bit of a caricature, but just to try to make the point where you, you speak, you meet an unbeliever, <coughs> and you say, okay, uh, you see, the Christian faith is rational, which means that you have the, uh, the ability and the authority even to make a judgment up about these facts. And so I want to show you that uh, there is such an argument, there's a logical argument that says that you have to have a first cause, and, and so you you make a certain uh, headway uh, in an argumentative in, by using arguments, and um, you try to get the person to admit the uh, relative probability of something or other uh, that you happen to be arguing for. And in this whole process, uh, because you're really assuming that you and the unbeliever are working from the same plane, you know, there's something neutral about what you're dealing with, Vantel uh, would say you are betraying your ultimate commitment because uh, you are committed to the view that if God is a creator, things cannot possibly make sense outside of God's own interpretation of his creation. And if you say, at least indirectly, by implication, you're saying to the unbeliever, ah, but you can make sense of all of this even without accepting uh, the truth of the creator, you've given up the ship right there, you see. Now, of course, that's uh, thinking about these things in, in very black and white terms. Obviously, when you're dealing with people, nobody's consistent, and, and, uh, and that's why even uh, a, a poor approach to apologetics sometimes is successful, because people are not consistent, and, and the Holy Spirit uh, overcomes our, our weaknesses and so on. But uh, in a strict sense, that would be the, the difference. Yeah? I think yeah okay well your question really leads me quite directly into the next thing that I was going to uh, to address more directly and that is okay so what is the significance of uh, Van Til or presuppositionalism more generally for our work of biblical studies, whether it be at a relatively popular level or at a more academic level or whatever. Um, here again, I think that uh, taking a look at, uh, at Machen's work can be of help because I think that by, by zeroing in on, on the areas where Machen's work is compatible shows to be compatible with Van Til's approach. By doing that, then you can turn things around and see how Van Til's emphasis complements it and then gives us further insight into what's uh, happening here. And, I, and there are two things that I want to, uh, to bring up here. One is the emphasis on the antithetical character between uh, belief and unbelief. And the second had to do with um, what is the audience that uh, 
that a biblical scholar or a biblical student is addressing when, when they happen to be doing research or, or, or presenting something. So those are the two things. With regard to the first, the matter of antithesis, um, you know, of course, that um, back in the early 20s, uh, Machen uh, wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism, and that was about as offensive a title as anybody could come up with. It was, it was a nasty title, actually, when you come right down to it. And uh, as you begin to read the book, he makes it even more offensive uh, because he doesn't leave any, uh, any ground for ambiguity as to what, what he means by that. And he says, look, uh, we're dealing with two religions here. One is historic Christianity, and the other one is this new stuff that's been developing in the past few decades. And uh, he says, now you see, Christianity, obviously, uh, you can never find that in, in absolutely perfect expression because we're all sinners. But uh, there are some forms of Christianity that are less uh, uh, legitimate or, or less valid than others. And they says, now, for example, there is Roman Catholicism. It's a deformed Christianity. But it is Christianity. Liberalism is not deformed Christianity. It's, it's, it's not Christianity at all. Now, you see, that sharp, we talk, you know, the word antithesis is often used in connection with Van Til's approach. Nothing could be more antithetical than that. Now, uh, Machen wrote this uh, before Van Til even was a student at uh, Princeton, I suppose, just about that time. So you could argue that this is something that Van Til learned from Machen. <laughs> and then when Van Til writes his book on Christianity and uh, Bartianism, uh, this is not an accident or a coincidence. Uh, this is, uh, you know, along the same lines. In uh, his book on the virgin birth, Machen uh, makes uh, a comment that I think is very, very uh, instructive. Uh, this in the preface, and, and he's acknowledging uh, the fact that some people have already responded to his work because his uh, book on the virgin birth was uh, regarded very highly, even by lots of people who didn't believe in, in, uh, in the uh, doctrine of the virgin birth. And uh, he addresses a, uh, a particular criticism that uh, Machen, some people felt, was just going for the jugular and trying to make this uh, overwhelming case. And uh, some people had raised the question, you know, uh, Machen's book is good in this and that respect, but uh, you get the impression that Machen wants an all or nothing approach to, uh, to the situation. Well, now, in the preface, it's on page 10 of the book. He says, it's really not quite accurate to say that I take an all-or-nothing approach, because as a matter of fact, uh, I can see, I can read books written by people who differ with me significantly, and I, and I see certain things that I can agree with. And uh, he talks about um, rejoicing about the agreements that he has with other scholars uh, who happen to reject some things that he accepts as true. So in that sense, it's not an all or nothing. And, and this, again, is going to help us with, with your question specifically, <coughs> that even uh, taking a, a very antithetical approach to um, biblical scholarship and so on it does not really mean uh, that we can learn nothing from, from people who, who come from a different perspective. But in spite of that, says, um, says Machen, nevertheless, the author, speaking about himself, still believes that a thoroughgoing apologetic is the strongest apologetic in the end. 
and excuse me, what he means is that um, you, if you want to defend Christianity, you, you have to defend Christianity in its full form, which involves the supernatural aspect. You see, you understand the background here. There are people who uh, may have been more or less conservative, and they wanted to uh, present a case for the general reliability of the Bible or the validity of Christianity, but felt that um, if they bring in the supernatural element, they're just going to offend too many people, and they won't be able to buy that. So let's at least take them this far, you see. That's, that's the old classical approach. Let's try to get them as far as we can, and then maybe they'll go a little further later on. Uh, Machen says, in effect, you need a thoroughgoing apologetic. And, and I don't want to read too much into his approach, but I think the implication is that if you have an apologetic that is half-hearted, that only tries to prove certain things, that leaves out something as fundamental as, as a supernatural, then you're not defending it well, because you have to defend the whole of it. So um, I think Van Til learned something from Machen, and I think we can learn something from, from Van Til, because he has given us, I think, a clearer and a more penetrating understanding of the reality of the antithesis uh, between uh, faith and, and sin, between uh, the revelation of God and the uh, autonomous reason of man. And uh, if, if we take that seriously, I think it will, in a significant way, uh, help, you know, help give focus to, to biblical studies and so on. Now, See, part of what that means is that you cannot take the antithesis without also recognizing the principle of, of common grace and uh, the recognition that um, God in his wisdom and generosity allows people who do not acknowledge him. Uh, nevertheless, he allows people to understand many things and to make wonderful contributions uh, to science and, and to health and literature and philosophy and so on. And Van Til's approach not only uh, did not reject that, but I think in a way it made it even more reasonable and, and the more understandable why, why this is the case. And uh, in effect, uh, and, and I don't have the quotation here, from, but there is a particular statement in, uh, in his book, uh, his small book on Common Grace, where... Uh, Van Til makes the point quite clearly that um, you can really appreciate and make use of the wisdom that is all over the creation, even uh, on the part of people who reject God, uh, specifically, in fact, this is the only way you can do it, if you acknowledge the reality of this central antithesis. Once you understand that from an ultimate perspective, uh, a person who does not receive the revelation of God does not interpret anything quite right, once you understand that and, and realize in, in what ways that is true, uh, then you can appreciate how there's a great deal of what they're doing that is of value, uh, and they can do it because they're really borrowing capital. You remember that expression that Van Til uh, would use uh, to create their own edifice, an edifice which is really built on, uh, on a foundation that cannot stand. But that doesn't mean that uh, all these little details are in themselves untrue. Now, 
see, to my way of thinking, Machen's work is a, um, a paragon, a genuine paragon of a biblical scholar who has a, an, an unequivocal commitment to the authority of Scripture and who finds it very easy, somehow, to uh, exploit the work of critical scholarship. And I think the reason why he could do that and do it well, and then he could do it respectfully and, and appreciating the, uh, the brilliance of, of some of these scholars, is that he was fundamentally committed to this antithesis. And, uh, and you can see that recognizing the antithesis on the one hand and recognizing the value uh, that uh, may be found in biblical scholarship, even from a liberal setting, those two things are not incompatible, just as you always keep in mind how central and just how, uh, how deep that antithesis really goes. Well, it, it's really difficult to respond to that uh, <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One of them is that there's such a diversity of stuff out there. <clears throat> you have everything from the biblical critic who is, you know, totally and self-consciously an unbeliever. And uh, he has some sort of literary or antiquarian interest and, and uh, produces all kinds of interesting things uh, that, that could still be used in some ways. Then you have your radical Christian scholar who, acknowledge, who uh, professes to be Christian, but you're not sure what that means, right? Then you have the more typical liberal, uh, quote-unquote liberal scholar who would profess faith, but uh, would not profess um, to believe in the uh, uh, infallibility of Scripture. And they may be Christians, you know, some of them undoubtedly are, but they have a very inconsistent understanding, from our perspective, very inconsistent understanding. Uh, consciously profess to be evangelicals, but oddly now they they have become part of, of, the, of mainstream scholarship in a way that perhaps is a little uncritical, or at least it has not tried to understand fully um, whether or not some of these things really fit into their, their basic commitments. So there's such diversity out there that it's very difficult to give one a simple answer, particularly, and, and then the, the, the further question has to do with what precisely they, they are writing about. Um, I mean, I'm sure that you have experienced this many times where you're reading a, a book and because the topic does not directly address matters of biblical uh, authority, perhaps, or maybe strict moral issues or whatever, you read the book and you're not too sure, you know, I wonder where this person really is coming from. And uh, there are certain statements that the person may make that uh, in themselves could be ambiguous, you know, you can interpret them, oh yeah, he is a solid Christian, he's giving expression to this, but... Uh, uh, then you can say, but you know, if he were not a Christian, then he would mean this by that, you see. And, and uh, so, no, it's it's uh, it's almost impossible to answer your question. Um, but uh, I think, at bottom, you know, you have to do what what you do when you read anything. If you you've got to evaluate it uh, on the basis of uh, its its reasonableness, and then you also evaluate it from the point of view of what you consider to be, you know, those non-negotiable uh, commitments. Now, what happens, you see, is that sometimes, <clears throat> you know, truth uh, flows out of the strangest places, 
right? <coughs> and uh, it, it's simply part of the um, of, of the general truth <coughs> that all of us are essentially inconsistent. A radical scholar who does not believe the authority of the Bible, you know, for him it's a free-for-all kind of thing. Sometimes that radical scholar, because he's not constrained by any commitments of that sort, is open to new ideas <coughs> that we might not even, you know, consider. Because at least on first impression, this is just not uh, compatible with my faith. Uh, so, so here's a radical scholar comes up with this new idea, and uh, as uh, he or she starts developing it, now the uh, Christian starts looking at it, and after some time, you begin to see, oh, wait a minute, I, I guess there is a way of, of seeing this that does not necessarily contradict. And all of a sudden, you find yourself uh, recognizing the truth that might not have occurred ever to a person with the right presuppositions, if you will, because we are finite and we're ignorant, and and when we when we have commitments, it, that does tend to blind us to certain things, and we need to recognize that's the case with everybody, really. I mean, this radical scholar probably has his own presuppositions of a different sort that blind him to other things, uh, and then vice versa. You may have an individual who uh, is committed to the authority of Scripture and all of that, but uh, for some reason. Um, something about the way the material is being approached, you, you don't come up with. So what am I getting at? Well, you look at the result of that work, and what, what your responsibility is to look at the facts, look at the arguments, see if a reasonable case is being made. And part of what that means, and I guess this would be the key, part of figuring out whether a, reason, whether a reasonable case is being made is to test it against the ultimate claims of Christianity. Um, and then, once you have decided that, yeah, this looks very much like the truth, I couldn't care less whether this came from a, uh, you know, a, uh, an elder in the church or from some atheist in China, uh, because in, in the most fundamental sense of the word, all truth really is God's truth. You mean apart from the obvious ones, like there is a God and so on? <laughs> well... Um, I am not sure that um, that the list of non-negotiables for an evangelical scholar should go beyond number one, the infallibility of Scripture. In other words, uh, a non-negotiable for me is an interpretation that uh, entails a contradiction within the pages of Scripture, and that's a I mean, that's not only a pretty important non-negotiable, but it's one that is more and more uh, being challenged by, by scholarship uh, generally. And what is kind of a, um, a corollary of that, and this one I, I suppose I would need to nuance a little bit, but uh, a non-negotiable also would be an interpretation of scripture that contradicts uh, things that I happen to believe are part of what scripture teaches. Now. Those two things are not exactly alike. Uh, the first one had to do with somebody saying to me, well, here's what Paul says in Galatians 5, and here's what he says in Romans, and these things cannot be put together, and they're contradictory. And I would say, no, that's, to me, that's not acceptable. Uh, the second one is a little bit more subtle than that, and it has, in a sense, more to do with my own confessional commitment. In other words, 
I, I, I have a commitment to a particular theological system. And in a sense, that's an unnegotiable, meaning that because I believe that my confessional commitment entails certain things that are uh, you know, necessary consequences from, from the teaching of Scripture, therefore I am not very open to accepting an interpretation that will undermine those doctrinal commitments. Now, obviously, that one, as I said, I have to nuance a little bit because I, I don't feel that I can um, uh, regard you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith as in the power with Scripture, obviously, and I always need to be open to the possibility that you know, somebody will show me from the Bible that there's something in the Westminster Confession of Faith that isn't right. Uh, but it does mean that, that, at least in terms of a strategy or, or tactically, I don't pay... Uh, that's not what I want to say. I was going to pay much attention. I don't, uh, I don't give a lot of weight to an interpretation that would force me to, you know, revise f fundamental uh, commitments that I have. Uh, now, to be sure, if I keep finding objection after objection after objection, then I have to say, wait a minute, maybe I need to revise my understanding of what the Bible teaches. But as I said, other than the basic concern with regard to the infallibility of Scripture, that's what we're talking about, and, and my basic um, theological commitments, no, I feel that my responsibility is to be quite open, uh, even though, as I think you were suggesting, of course, I have certain, you know, third-level assumptions, uh, you know, basically a conservative way of looking at things, and I am more disposed to interpret the facts in a way that fit those, but uh, I hope you know, that I am able to look at arguments against some of those assumptions with total fairness and that I'm willing to change my mind about some of these. Some of these. Uh, maybe one specific example would be with regard to Philippians. The, um, uh, the setting of Philippians traditionally has been thought to be Rome. Now, it's, it's a strong tradition. Uh, you know, the vast majority of conservative commentators have accepted that, and so I am predisposed to uh, thinking that Rome was the uh, place of origin of Romans. But uh, when I look at it very carefully, I can say to myself now, there's nothing about that which entails something fundamental about the teaching of Scripture, because there's no explicit claim about that, and so I have to be open to other possibilities. And uh, to me, an early tradition is something that needs to be taken seriously, and if I don't see any... Um, really weighty factors to contradict that tradition, I'm, I'm disposed to, to hold on to it. So in, in my commentary on Philippians, I say, I'm, this is my working assumption that Rome is. But I hope that I have not interpreted the, the epistle in such a way that if I am wrong about Rome as a setting, all of a sudden my exegetical work, you know, it gets messed up. I hope that my exegesis does not depend so much on, on a theoretical construct, which is all that is, that it uh, it weakens the the interpretation itself. Yeah. Yeah. The the antithesis uh, is fundamentally uh, the God of Scripture and His revelation over against everything else, which uh, you know we would have to say is satanic and it is uh, uh, has its origin in sin. In other words, uh, 
in, in a sense, uh, and I, I think people are not always uh, aware of this in regard to some of the work, professional work of biblical exegesis, but in a sense, strange as, this may sound a little bit strange at first, uh, the, the situation is not that different from somebody who, say, is doing work in um, uh, classical scholarship or even um, you know, biological sciences or whatever, where you're having to do research <coughs> and that uh, you have to interact with other research produced by people who are not Christians. And there it's even more difficult often to know whether they're Christians or, or not Christians. And it is simply a recognition that within, within the context of common grace, you know, we can find truth, you know, expressed in, 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 uh, to, to some degree in a variety of uh, places. So I guess maybe the way that I would like to, uh, to respond to your question is by saying that now we're talking about something else altogether. Uh, having acknowledged that, that basic contrast, uh, now, you know, we have certain kinds of work to do and uh, we always need to have our guard up to make sure that we're not, uh, you know, compromising uh, some of that, that basic antithetical commitment. How much, um, <coughs> well, when you say your confessional commitment provide a positive in the biblical existence? It puts it as a negative, well, where against the confession. But does the confession positively affect you? Oh, yeah. In, in other words, um, my own approach, and I think that uh, the majority of even evangelical biblical scholars would not be very happy with my saying this. And my own approach is that um, all of us have certain theological presuppositions and that uh, one ought to consciously make use of those assumptions in the actual work of interpreting the text. Uh, in other words, I, uh, from, a, from a tactical, methodological point of view, whatever, I am very much opposed to, well, you know, what I heard when I was uh, uh, growing up and uh, was taught in many settings, and I still may, I think that still many people will make comments like this. When you go to the Bible, don't look at any commentaries, uh, go to it with a blank mind, more or less, and just let the text influence you, and then you make up your mind about the text, and then you might perhaps look at what other people are saying. And um, to me, that that is not very smart because uh, just just because I don't look at commentaries before I look at the text doesn't mean that I'm not already coming with an enormous presuppositions, assumptions, ideas, and so on about that. Now, you understand that now we're using the word presupposition in a little different sense from, from the uh, uh, more fundamental Ventilian uh, notion here. Uh, but um, you cannot do it anyway. So you might as well be conscious of what you're doing. And uh, I remember even when I was teaching at the Westmont College, I would tell students, look, if you're a dispensationalist, you go to the Epistle to the Hebrews, you shouldn't say to yourself, you know, I'm going to take a little machine that, that uh, empties my mind of everything I've heard before. Now, go to the text, and, and uh, you ought to try to interpret the text along dispensationalist lines. That's what you ought to do. And if you come across a problem, this is really offensive to some people, you ought to try to make the text fit your dispensationalist viewpoint. And my rationale in saying that is this. 
that if you're doing that consciously, you're more likely to be sensitive to the fact that sometimes the text is not fitting. Whereas if you delude yourself into thinking that I am looking at this objectively, then those assumptions in a more subtle way keep you from seeing how the text may be an obstacle to... uh, So I I would tell students, I think that after a while, you'll come across so many of these problems that you'll finally have to revise your dispensationalist uh, presuppositions. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that methodologically it makes sense to be conscious of what one is bringing theologically to the text and seek to interpret it in that light. Uh, but hopefully, being uh, always open to the possibility that what I'm, that, that there may be certain traits in the, in the text that are giving me problems. And then I, I owe it to my own commitments to ask the question, hmm, let me, let me double check this. Uh, is this really, this assumption that I'm bringing compatible with, with what the Bible as a whole teaches? Did you use the term limiting concept in a negative sense uh, necessarily or, or? I'm not sure that. You weren't trying, okay, all right. <clears throat> you know, um, oh my. We would be unfaithful both uh, to the authority of Scripture and I think even to the Westminster Confession of Faith if we didn't take into account what you have just said. This is an old document. (coughs) It is not infallible. Uh, It is susceptible to being expressed differently or recognizing that maybe there are certain things that uh, are not in the Confession that should be there, some things in the Confession that perhaps shouldn't be there, um, and, uh, you know, the confession itself um, qualifies itself as a limit, limiting concept by saying uh, no council <laughs> can come up with, uh, you know, a set of, of, of totally authoritative uh, uh, teachings here. <clears throat> In practice, you see, um, the churches that subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, do recognize this even in, in their um, uh, ecclesiastical life. Now, as you know, there have been changes made to the Westminster Confession, particularly in, in the areas of the magistrate, uh, the recognition that to call the Pope the Antichrist, probably not the best idea, and, and that's not part of some of uh, you know, the, the more recent editions of the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are certain uh, other elements that uh, are by some sort of consensus recognized to be at least debatable questions. Now, an obvious one in our circles is the fact that the Westminster Confession makes reference to uh, the light of nature, and the question is raised whether that is uh, consistent with Van Til's uh, thinking and, and the whole idea of the natural theology and so on. And the probably, probably what the Westminster Divines meant by it is something that we would not be really happy with. Um, the, uh, the rather, um, the way in which the um, observance of the fourth commandment is expressed in terms of, of some of the practices in the uh, 17th century. Uh, you know, there's some sort of understanding that uh, even, uh, say, I belong to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which, which takes a fairly 
strict view of, of the fourth commandment, but I think most of the ministers in the church would would not quite go as far in the detail as the. Uh, so what what happens, you see, is that yeah, it is sort of like limiting concept in a way, but one that we recognize does not have the same sort of authority that the Bible has, and and so there are certain things that are up for discussion, and presumably, the time might come or would come when. Uh, enough of those questions are part of, of the church discussion where we might say we better have another assembly and come up with a, a new document if only to take into account new problems that uh, were not being addressed back in the 17th century and then maybe clean up a couple of things. Now we recognize, I mean, the, you, you do come across a few minor details in the confession that uh, we know now, well, that's not very well expressed because we have better understanding of uh, the biblical text or, or what have you. So, um, it's in a sense, your question is, is helpful in, in, in reminding us that, uh, uh, you know, these documents are, in, in the strictest sense, a secondary standard and not to be used in the same way as Scripture. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> The problem is that nobody knows what the Bible's own organizing uh, principle is. You know, I mean, every every scholar that says that has his own uh, particular approach, and um, I think it's a valid question. I think we at least need to reflect on it and ask ourselves: Is it possible that we're using certain categories that make us move in a particular direction? such that it blinds us to other elements in, in the biblical text. But um, in the very nature of the case, God in his wisdom gave us a scripture that is not neatly organized, you see. And uh, the church does have the responsibility to, it's not a matter of organizing the Bible, but a matter, it's, in part it's a pedagogical question, in part it is a, uh, a need that arises uh, in response to heresy, and then you've got to do if, if the Bible had been neatly organized, you see, uh, then you would, it would not have the, um, I don't want to use the word flexibility, but it, it would not be very easy to deal with the variety of challenges that come against it, you see. And it is in response to those challenges and further reflection that the church has... Uh, tried to, to give a summary of, of, of what it understands. Uh, so, um, yeah, to the extent that your organizing principle can be shown to be fairly close to biblical categories, I think that's obviously a plus. But uh, it, I don't think it's realistic. I mean, it's, it's not in keeping with the character of the Bible, if you will, to say that you use those organizing, because they're not there in, in, in the sense in which people usually mean that. Well, I told you that there were two things. Uh, one was the stress and the antithesis. <clears throat> but there's another factor here. Uh, and, and I think the way I phrased it was, what is the, what is the audience that you have in view when, when you're doing apologetic-type uh, work? And uh, <clears throat> here, again, I think uh, Machen can be of some help. Bonson, in the article that I mentioned earlier, uh, dug up a couple of uh, statements from Machen, which are interesting. Um, 
This is in an essay that appeared in the early 30s. Uh, sometimes when I have tried to present arguments in defense of the resurrection of our Lord or of the truth uh, at this point or that, uh, the truth of God's word, someone has come up to me after the lecture and has said to me very kindly, we liked it and we are impressed with the considerations you have adduced, but the trouble is we all believe in the Bible already and the persons that really needed the lecture aren't here. When someone tells me that, I am not very greatly disturbed. True, I should have liked to have just as many skeptics as possible at my lecture, but if they're not there, I do not necessarily think that my efforts are in vain. What I am trying to do by my apologetic lecture is not merely, perhaps not even primarily, to convince people who are opposed to the Christian religion. Rather, I am trying to give to Christian people, Christian parents, Sunday school teachers, materials they can use, not in dealing with avowed skeptics whose backs are up against Christianity, but in dealing with their own children or with their pupils in, in the classes who love them, who long to be Christians as they are, but are troubled by the hostile voices on every side. And then uh, he, he goes on to, uh, to say that it is a narrow view of Christian apologetics that views the defense of, of the faith as being useful only for winning those who are opposed to it. Uh, it is useful most of all in producing an intellectual atmosphere, he says, in which the acceptance of the gospel will be seen to be something other than offense against the truth. Uh, but because argument is insufficient, it does not follow that it is unnecessary. And, and so he says, I believe in the reason defense of the inspiration of the Bible and, and so on. This, I think, is uh, useful for a variety of reasons. And, and I think you can see how here again, this fits in in an important way with uh, some of Van Til's work. And then in turn, that can help us get a better perspective on what we're doing. Uh, the other quotation, which is very similar to the one that I have just read, uh, Machen makes uh, a little remark about the fact, yeah, I wish that some of these people who attack quote-unquote fundamentalism would at least read the works published by the quote-unquote fundamentalists. And he's talking about himself, you know, these people haven't read my books and, and they're criticizing it and they don't even know what we're really teaching. And I think, I don't want to read too much between the lines here, but I, I, I think it may reflect a little bit of the frustration of any conservative biblical scholar who sooner or later finds out that the liberals are just not interested in reading what the conservatives are writing, and that even when they read it, they either proceed to ignore it or to just filter it through their own basic uh, uh, you know, filter uh, and uh, not do any, uh, much with it. And maybe to some extent, you see, Machen may have been a little frustrated and, and, uh, by that, that, perhaps that's part of what's going on here. But uh, whether or not that, that is the case, um, he recognized that his work could be of, of special value as a means of nourishing the faith of those who have come to Christ. Now, you see where this, I think, fits uh, the, the Ventilian concern. As you know, Ventil argued that apologetics is not the first step, you see, where by using just uh, neutral reason, you establish a number of principles. Now, you see, then you become a Christian, then you're ready to learn about the Bible and so on and so forth. In his view, apologetics really grew out of a recognition of the, of, of the Christian faith and the Reformed faith in particular. By the way, that, that does create a slight tension uh, in, in our own curriculum because, uh, um, I mean, logically, that would mean that apologetics should have been taught the last thing in the, in the curriculum, but it was taught the first thing, and that followed the old Christian pattern and even the, the catalog of our seminary, you know, is a little bit ambiguous about that kind of thing. But... Uh, uh, the, the fact is that Van Til saw apologetics being built on the truth of Scripture, not as something that is 
established prior to understanding what the Bible is saying. Therefore, it seems rather clear that apologetics is eminently useful and valuable for those who have already acknowledged and accepted the truth of Scripture and have learned from it. And uh, now what are you doing? You are, you're trying to show um, that uh, Christianity best accounts for the facts out there. You know that uh, there's no system anywhere, no worldview, that can claim to um, have no weaknesses. There are no gaps in, in the logic. There are no problems or imperfections. Uh, and simply because we, we are all ignorant. And even the, the most sophisticated defender of the Christian faith is not going to be able to give an answer to every conceivable problem that, that arises. But the question is whether the position that you're committed to uh, can account for the facts, uh, can, can give a, a reasonable uh, demonstration of, of how it all fits together. And I'm totally convinced that Christianity can do that uh, far better than any other uh, position out there. And I think for believers to be shown that, uh, to be taught that. And therefore, again, back to you see your question about what uh, does an evangelical biblical scholar do, um, I hope you know that some of the things I, I write may be read by a few people out there and may give them pause about some of their claims and, and, and commitments and so on. But uh, I frankly don't think too much about that. Uh, what I think about is, uh, you know, the people who are already, you know, committed, yeah, at least in some sense, to the truth of Scripture and, and need to be taught. And uh, can, can we, by um, identifying areas of antithesis uh, as well as recognizing, what, recognizing the things that can be used uh, to, uh, to further our own appreciation of the truth, uh, will these people out there, in effect, be, be nourished and strengthened by seeing how, how this material can, can come together? Any questions uh, about that? Yeah. <coughs> well, if you want the real answer to that question, wait. Um, I hope, uh, see, what are we now? This is middle of March. Wait two months. <coughs> And the spring issue of the Westminster Journal will be out. And there's an article by Dr. Edgar comparing Van Til and Schaefer. It's a very, very instructive uh, article. And, and uh, although I don't myself don't know enough to, to say that he's right on everything, I, I have to, to think that he's largely on target in the way in which he's uh, handling that, that whole problem. Edgar, Bill Edgar, yeah. <clears throat> um, I think that in terms of the of the basic commitment, I mean the issues that we that I've been talking about here, uh, Schaefer and Van Til were very much agreed. I, d I don't think that, that was really a problem. I, I think that there were certain um, aspects of uh, that have to do with the tactics that then colored the way uh, the substance was expressed. And it may have led to some differences of, of a more substantive nature between Van Til and Schaefer. Uh, although I think those differences are a little on the subtle side, frankly. Um, and uh, you, you, know, you know how this works. Uh, sometimes the people that you're closest to are the ones that you feel a particular need to distinguish yourself from. And um, 
people from the outside, many would probably not be able to see, you know, a hair's breadth of difference between Van Til and Schaefer, but they themselves would have been able to see it and, and so on. Um, no, I, I think on, on the basic uh, concerns, uh, they would, yeah, and you see, I think the yes, but personally, now I'm, I'm really speaking without all that uh, familiarity uh, with Schaefer's uh, writings, but I believe that the yes, but, that, that acceptive element, that adversative, had more to do with how do I implement all of this, you see, in terms of his own personal, I, Schaefer, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but I think he probably himself would have uh, recognized, was not a professional philosopher. And was I don't think he was really interested so much in constructing a, um, a Christian theological system over <coughs> against philosophies, and therefore his concerns and his interests were a little different. And uh, I think in terms of his own personal uh, work and the way in which he sought to present the, the gospel, maybe found a little difficult uh, implementing some of the things that Vento was doing, and, and, and so they took on a slight different shape. But um, as I said, um, I think uh, Edgar would be the one to talk to you about that.